Donald Trump had barely been elected president when reporters discovered an unusually creative lobbying campaign that had been quietly launched by the government of Saudi Arabia. The Saudis were upset about a law recently passed by Congress that would allow the families of the September 11th victims to sue them for alleged complicity in the terror attacks that killed their loved ones. So the Saudis began recruiting American military veterans from around the country, offering to fly them to Washington and put them up in a plush new luxury hotel if they would agree to press Congress to get rid of the new law. You can probably guess which hotels the Saudis had decided to patronize. As I wrote for Yahoo News in March 2017, they were putting the veterans up at the brand new Trump International Hotel, the very same hotel that happened to be owned by one Donald J. Trump and members of the Trump family. Overall, the Saudi government spent $270,000 on rooms and meals for American veterans at the Trump Hotel a figure that was recently cited by a federal judge as a possible unconstitutional violation of the prohibition on presidents and other federal office holders receiving emoluments from foreign governments. The disclosure of how the Saudis tried to combine the political punch of veterans with lucrative revenues for the president's personal business is only a small chapter in the larger story of Saudi influence buying in Washington. It is a tale of big money and powerful lobbying clout that is about to be sorely tested by the shocking disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, a widely respected journalist and critic of the current Saudi regime who entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul earlier this month and never came out, amid reports that he may have been brutally murdered. We'll discuss the Saudi lobbying efforts and the big money behind it on today's Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we've spent so much time uh, on this show talking about Russian money and Russian connections to Donald Trump, but I think it's probably about time we put the spotlight on the Saudi connections to Donald Trump. Uh, absolutely. And uh, as I think you said uh, in your introduction, um, you know, this was just a tiny part uh, of uh, the uh, what you know the Saudi campaign to spread their money and influence uh, around uh, Washington, Wall Street, Hollywood, all over the country. Um, Two hundred seventy thousand dollars for the Saudi royal family—that that is a drop in the in the bucket. Um, but look, I think this, uh, in some ways, is a scandal that was just waiting to explode for a long time. Um, there just are so many interests. Uh, in this country that have been addicted to Saudi money for uh, decades and decades and decades. Um, you know, I think this is a story that has legs. We're going to be hearing about this for a long time. Um, we talked on uh, Skullduggery last week about uh, this uh, Saudi investor conference that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, is putting on in uh, in Riyadh, the so-called um, – uh, Davos in the desert. You're beginning to get some business leaders pulling out. Uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, has said he's going to pull out, um, as have some others. But interestingly, at least as of this recording, none have actually said why uh, they're pulling out. They, um, they, you know, they even ha- either haven't explained it. Um, or they've, uh, you know, said something bland like uh, scheduling conflicts. And I think that's a small sign uh, that these um, 
Uh, these companies, uh, these business interests uh, know that there is a giant spigot of Saudi money coming that they can't afford right. to turn off. Um, and so the question is, uh, will this just be a short uh, period uh, when when they're kind of laying low, but ultimately they go back to uh, to, yeah. to, to, to getting that money? Yeah, exactly. They're trying to leave that door open, uh, uh, hoping that things can go back to business as usual. And when I say we got to look at Donald Trump and Saudi money, uh, you know, to be fair, we uh, the Saudis have been spreading that money around uh, in so many different ways to every president we've had uh, for decades now, every presidential library you go to and you will see the name of uh, you will see on the wall of funders either the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or various members of the royal kingdom who have pumped money into uh, the building of the U.S. president's personal library, uh, the uh, number of uh, lobbyists on the Saudi payroll in Washington, Republican and Democrat, uh, is, uh, is legendary. Um, but, you know, what fascinates me about the story we're about to talk about is the sort of both the crassness of it, of it and the creativity behind it, um, using veterans, putting them up in the hotel. And we've got uh, just the guy to talk about it uh, now, somebody who's been tracking that for quite some time. Um, we've now got on the line Brian McClinchy. Um, who is a independent journalist who uh, runs a website called 28pages.org. Um, Brian, welcome to Buried Treasure. Great to be with both of you. So first of all, start out telling us, what is 28pages.org? It's a website that I originally launched to help bring about the declassification of 28 pages on foreign government links to the 9-11 attacks. Those pages were part of a congressional intelligence inquiry report and were classified by the Bush administration. And there was a, a, a drive lasting more than a decade to declassify those pages. And uh, as that drive gained steam, I kind of joined the effort to help create a website that would provide information and help facilitate uh, citizen activism and help uh, push that objective over the uh, edge and, uh, and to success. Foreign links, we're really talking about Saudi links here. We're talking about Saudi government links to the 9-11 attackers, yeah. And when the right. pages were declassified, uh, you know, for example, it revealed uh, one of the names that came up over and over again was uh, that of Saudi Prince Bandar, who at the time of the 9-11 attacks was the Saudi ambassador to the United States and you know, close family friends with the uh, Bush family as well. And to be fair, you know, we, we haven't seen a smoking gun that shows Saudi government foreknowledge of the uh, September 11th terror attacks, right? It's more sort of these murky links of uh, either to the hijackers or people close to the hijackers who seem to have connections with both uh, individuals in the Saudi government and uh, wealthy Saudis themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a quite a, a lot of different avenues that point that way. Um, for example, two of the uh, hijackers on Flight 77, who were based in the San Diego area, they're the ones that uh, most uh, they're at, really at the center of the 9/11 civil suit right now. Um, uh, they 
they have, there are many connections between their associates and uh, Saudi government officials and suspected Saudi government officials. These, by the way, were the hijackers. Uh, Mike, Mike and I know a lot about this story because we did a new, Newsweek cover story uh, back in, when was it, Isakoff? 2002. Uh, 2002. The, the, uh, the 9-11 hijackers, the CIA let get away, um, and they were living openly um, in uh, San Diego, uh, even though the um, uh, the F- the CIA had actually tracked them into the country, but then didn't bother to tell the FBI. Yeah, even worse, they actually prevented the FBI agents who were assigned at Alex Station at the CIA station uh, that was studying Bin Laden uh, actually actively intervened to prevent them from notifying FBI headquarters that a known Al Qaeda associate had obtained a multi-entry U.S. visa. So the so the the families of the 9/11 victims have been pressing for years uh, to uh, be able to sue various the, both the the kingdom itself and various individuals in the kingdom, members of the royal family. Uh, they finally got their chance in late 2016 when Congress passes a law that basically allows them to bring these suits in federal courts in the United States over the strenuous opposition of the Obama White House, by the way. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, the President Obama vetoed the law. His his veto got overridden by the House and Senate, so it became new law. I think and that was the, the only time that uh, one of Obama's uh, vetoes was overridden. That's correct, the yeah. only time. Which is a pretty good sign that... Uh, 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 American support for the Saudis and and viewing the Saudi relationship as integral to American foreign policy is not unique to the Trump administration or any administration in uh, in recent decades. It's all of them that saw the Saudis as important allies in the in the Middle East. Correct. Absolutely true. Uh, we are no matter what uh, party is holding the White House. We've got that bipartisan devotion to that Saudi relationship. Right. And so after uh, the um, uh, the law is passed, the Saudis mount this very unusual and creative way to try to get Congress to uh, overturn the law. And uh, Brian, you were very helpful to me when I was writing the story about this back in March 2017. But lay out what the Saudis did and how they did it. Well, in this fight, Saudi Arabia is uh, in Washington and in the nation was facing a very sympathetic set of adversaries, specifically you know, 9-11 widows and family members who were trying to have their day in court. And uh, yeah, you talk about their creativity. Um, you know, they kind of sought out the next most sympathetic audience in modern American society, which was U.S. military veterans. And they proceeded to launch an enormous campaign across the entire country where they uh, basically gave veterans a false description of what this new law, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, uh, implied for them, specifically telling them that if JASTA were to pass, that U.S. military veterans themselves would face trials in foreign countries you know, related to their wars and their deployments and so forth. It's absolutely false. So they, they told them this, and then they said, hey, we've got a grassroots campaign. Some veterans are getting together in Washington to lobby against this measure to help protect their fellow service members. And uh, would you be interested in, in coming to Washington, D.C., all expenses paid to uh, lobby Congress to weaken, you know, to change this law? Now, 
many of these veterans I interviewed said they had no idea that this was all being run by Saudi Arabia and its lobbyists, and specifically uh, its flagship lobbying and PR firm Corvus Communication. And when the veterans came to Washington, where did they stay? They stayed at the, uh, most of them stayed at the Trump International. There's also some other hotels that were used. Just to give a, a little bit of a flavor uh, of how they, they sort of were trying to entice these veterans to come along, um, I think this was from the invitation. This is in your story, Isikoff. Uh, you don't have to know anything about JASTA, uh, uh, wrote uh, uh, Luark. Uh, he was working for, he was a consultant working for the Saudis to a group of veterans she was trying to recruit for the effort. Quote, it is all expenses paid, flight, dinner, hotel, transportation. They will be putting you, uh, uh, putting you in the Trump Hotel which is an inc- which is incredibly nice. It's an awesome trip and basically like a five-star vacation. That's a little heavy-handed. <laughs> exactly. You know, kind of an offer you can't refuse. And for a lot of these veterans, and you know, they were specifically targeting war veterans, um, a lot of these veterans, they were in a place emotionally where this was a very appealing to them because they the idea of getting together and doing something for the good or you know, what they perceived to be the good of fellow veterans was highly appealing to them. Now, you can imagine the outrage, you know, some of the ones I interviewed uh, who told me, I enlisted because of 9-11, and then for me to find out that I had been tricked into lobbying on behalf of Saudi Arabia, which has been credibly accused of having links to the attacks, um, you know, the, the outrage was pretty visceral. And uh, just uh, from what you know, Brian, how'd they happen to pick the Trump Hotel as the place to put all these veterans up? Well, a number... You know, I can't exactly say what their motivations was. Number number one, it's a, a very opulent hotel, and the uh, this place was kind of a freewheeling, uh, free spending operation. Of course, we cannot absolutely discount the <laughs> the, the very real possibility that uh, uh, wanting to curry favor uh, with the. Uh, new administration as well in violation uh, got great, of got a which, great location which would be a violation <laughs> of the emoluments clause so this could end up in 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 the uh, articles of impeachment but i should say you know i travel to washington all the time um and one one of the things that they said uh mike in your story when you talked to the pr representatives for this for for the saudis was they got a great rate I think it was three hundred dollars a night or whatever. <laughs> like I go to DC yeah. all the time, and um, we—they never actually. Uh, like our people never actually recommend the Trump Hotel. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> right. happen. The, not as, that good as, a rate. The, uh, minded traveler. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I was going to say, Leah, at least two hundred seventy thousand dollars was spent there, and that may actually understate it because you've got other parties in this operation who are themselves, you know, compensated. Who may have you know, some of their compensation may reflect expenses they had themselves incurred at the Trump Hotel. The the main orchestrator of the Trump Hotel lobbying operation, for example, his firm received eight hundred thousand um, dollars from Corvus on behalf of Saudi Arabia. So some portion of that too might might represent a Trump Hotel reimbursement. Now, now here's my theory about this. This law had just overwhelmingly passed Congress, and this is JASTA we're talking about. We've referred to the acronym, uh, Brian. What does JASTA stand for? Um, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. Right, that was the name of the law that allows the families to sue uh, uh, the Saudi government uh, over the 9-11 attacks. This had overwhelmingly passed, as I mentioned, so much so that Obama's veto of it was overridden. The actual chances of getting this law changed at that point in time uh, was seems to me pretty negligible. So one wonders, was 
were the Saudis really trying to change the law here, or were they just coming up with this unorthodox way of funneling money into the president's personal business? Oh, I think this is absolutely a a dedicated, hopeful effort to change that law. Um, you know, at the, at the time, even at the, the did time, they have a single was- member of Congress behind them? Who was willing to, to to push for a change in the law? Did they have people? Yeah, absolutely. They had point men in uh, John McCain and uh, Lindsey Graham, who right out of the gate, uh, it, the, the day it was passed, you had a whole a letter signed by a whole number of senators saying we're we're passing, we're voting for this. However, we've got some reservations, and we want to evaluate whether we can strengthen this law. Um, and you had uh, uh, McCain and Graham, who were reliable errand boys for the Saudi kingdom, um, right out of the gate were uh, doing floor speeches on this topic. Um, you had, uh, uh, I believe it's Brownstein Hyatt, the uh, lobbying firm for Saudi Arabia, was uh, routing around uh, proposed changes in the language. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have to tear the whole thing down. You know, it was politically it passed very quickly. Really what they needed to do was weaken it. And so that's what they were trying to do was to uh, amend the law in such a way that it would make it a higher hurdle for those 9-11 families to prevail in court. And the scope of this, you know, was well beyond Washington. There were operatives all over the nation involved in this. There was, there was even uh, lobbying of state legislators and governors to have them in turn pressure uh, Washington being out of uh, some supposed fear that it would uh, affect you know business commerce between Saudi Arabia and states you know like Texas that have large defense manufacturers and so forth. So I don't doubt for a moment the sincerity with which the uh, kingdom was trying to uh, get this law tweaked. Well, let me ask you, Brian, if you if you doubt the sincerity of uh, Lindsey Graham and, and John McCain, who you referred to as reliable errand boys for the Saudi government, um, because, I mean, couldn't this just be uh, real politic? I mean, the, the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia is an important strategic relationship, uh, you know, bulwark against the Iranians, a uh, very w- wealthy country. I mean, occupies a very important uh, place in our uh, geopolitics and our interests. So, uh, uh, you know, it might be, uh, you, you just may disagree with it, but uh, uh, don't don't you think they did it out of, uh, you know, sincere, uh, uh, you know, beliefs? I, I think they did it, I mean, you could definitely call it real politic, but I think what we have in Washington and our relationship in the Middle East is where real politic is defined not necessarily what's by in the interest of American citizens, but what, what's in the interest in solidifying relationships between our intelligence community and other intelligence communities and our uh, defense sector and its customers abroad. And I think, I think a lot of times we see the rationales become circular. You know, Saudi Arabia is, is billed as a bulwark against Iran, and then you know, we're, uh, the hostility towards Iran is uh, driven by the fact that it's a, uh, an arrival of Saudi Arabia. And it's I, you know, I don't believe we necessarily. I don't think we really need a bulwark against Iran in the Middle East. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of this is kind of contrived and becomes circular logic in that we associate ourselves with Saudi Arabia, and thus their rival becomes our rival. When we should probably take a more hands-off relationship with both of them. Um, put this in the context, uh, the broader context of Saudi influence in Washington. Um, I think there's been some studies about, you know, over a hundred lobbyists uh, um, are on the Saudi payroll in Washington. The amount of money that the Saudis spend uh, on lobbying 
uh, nearly tripled, I believe, in, in 2017, uh, upwards of $27 million. Uh, and then uh, you look more broadly. We mentioned before, uh, Dan and I, the uh, uh, Saudi funding of presidential libraries, but there's also uh, think tanks and uh, various and, and money that pours into universities. Uh, this is a, a really substantial chunk of change that the Saudis spend in the United States aimed at influencing American policy. Absolutely. And it goes well beyond uh, men and women in suits strolling cats. Capitol Hill, like you said, um, you know, and to highlight one example, um, you, you mentioned think tanks, you know, and it kind of gets back to what was my point earlier about a lot of this being circular in terms of, you know, Saudi Arabia being designated a key ally. Well, it's kind of a key designated key ally because we designated a key ally. It becomes becomes circular. For example, uh, Saudi Arabia is a, a major supporter of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of the most revered. Uh, think tanks in Washington, and if you evaluate its output, you, it a lot of it looks like it was written by Saudi Arabia. Well, then that in turn influences uh, legislators and journalists. You know their output to take this pro pro Saudi line and to uh, to keep parroting the fact that Saudi Arabia is a key ally. Um, and, and just to add on top of that, because I looked at uh, the Saudi funding of the uh, CSIS, as you mentioned, but um, th there's also the funding of big arms dealers, arm uh, weapons contractors, uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, all those very same cast of characters who the President Trump is now citing as the people who the Saudis are going to buy weapons for uh, translating into jobs in the United States. Right. Yeah, the cast of characters supporting CSIS, they're all kind of have this shared interest in perpetuating the status quo with Saudi Arabia. Uh, whatever the underlying reality. You know, and it's, it's called a key ally, but again, to get back to uh, you know, kind of what the center of this discussion, what kicked off this discussion, was uh, the fact that you've got all kinds of links between Saudi royals and al-Qaeda. You know, you've got the 20th hijacker, uh, Zacharias Moussaoui, you know, giving a, a sworn statement that he uh, managed a spreadsheet where he tracked donations from a number of uh, Saudi royals to Al Qaeda. Um, you know, plus all the other evidence that the 9/11 plaintiffs have now uh, are, have uh, assembled in their case. We're uh, we're going to have to wrap up this conversation, but I just one little uh, bit of uh, uh, news uh, since we've been talking, um, and uh, this comes from our Yahoo News colleague uh, Alex Nazarian, who just went up with a story. Uh, about some of these uh, think tanks in Washington that are uh, heavily funded by the Saudis. And some of them, at least, um, are beginning to get uh, pretty uncomfortable about their relationship. And Alex was just reporting that the Brookings Institution, which is one of the most important uh, think tanks in Washington, has decided to end its relationship with, uh, with Riyadh. And uh, they put out a statement that said that the Brookings Institution has decided to terminate our sole research grant with the government of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia effective immediately. Um, so we'll see if uh, CSIS and some of these other uh, institutions uh, follow suit. Uh, but uh, thank you so much, uh, Brian uh, McGlinchey, for uh, joining us on, uh, on Buried Treasure. It was a fascinating conversation, and uh, this is a story that uh, is not going away, so we may, we may be talking to you again soon. 
Great. Great to be with you. All right. Okay. Thanks, Brian. So look, as we uh, break up a couple of uh, additional breaking news items uh, we should share here. First, of course, is the reports that the Saudis are about to admit or acknowledge that, in fact, Jamal Khashoggi, that uh, dissident journalist who disappeared inside the Saudi consulate, was, in fact, murdered during his interrogation. We haven't seen exactly the Saudi statement yet, but it seems a sign that they are at least attempting to come clean. We should should also say that at least the reports at this moment, as we record, indicate that the uh, that the Saudis are looking for ways to insulate Mohammed bin Salman um, by uh, suggesting that uh, maybe this was, uh, uh, you know, some part of the uh, Saudi Mohabarat in the intelligence apparatus um, going rogue and that uh, the Saudi prince, uh, crown prince, did not know about it. So we'll see how that plays out. Right, right. And uh, and exactly um, uh, as just to underscore how awkward all this is for the uh, Saudi efforts to burnish their image in the United States. Uh, the other day on uh, Skullduggery, I uh, noted the uh, invitation I'd gotten from the embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its ambassador inviting me to the Saudi National Day celebration at the Saudi embassy this Thursday in Washington, D.C. As we were uh, interviewing Brian, I got an updated email informing me that the event has been canceled. Well, I guess the Saudis are uh, not in any mood to celebrate given everything that's going on. And Isakoff, you won't be getting your your embassy canapes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Anyway, uh, that's it for this edition of Buried Treasure, but we will be staying on this story of the Saudis, Khashoggi, and the Trump administration. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget you can subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you on Friday. 